Housing isn't the only thing that's going up. So is homeowners insurance. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Legislators are heading back to Tallahassee later this month for another special session. This time to talk about rising property insurance policy rates. Can they come up with a way to keep insurance companies here in Florida and prices reasonable? Also, the Camillas House has a new program to help families learn how to cook healthy meals that are not expensive. Chef Norman Van Aken joins us to share a few recipes. Finally, XXX Tentacion lived a short life, but in that time, he built a name for himself as a rapper with a hardcore fan base. There's a new documentary about him, and we'll hear from the director. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. In a little over a week, lawmakers will be back in Tallahassee, yes, again, for a special session. The issue this time isn't redistricting, it's not Disney, it's property insurance. Lawmakers plan to address the price of homeowners insurance, which is skyrocketing because some carriers are going out of business. Others are leaving the state. And if you're a renter thinking you're not affected, well, some landlords are passing off those higher insurance costs on you, the tenant. State Representative Republican Tom Fabricio joins us now. He represents parts of Broward and Miami-Dade counties, and he sits on the insurance and banking subcommittee in the House his background is insurance law. Representative Fabricio, thank you for the time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So insurance carriers are going insolvent or basically they're, uh, they, they can't pay their debts. Uh, they have, you have others deciding to just leave the state of Florida. What exactly can you as a lawmaker, what can the legislature do about the insurance problems that we have in the state? Well, you got to look at the root cause of what's going on. And um, number one, you know, I think just about everybody acknowledges the fact that we are having a homeowner's insurance crisis in Florida. Um, you know, the carriers have been going insolvent. Uh, and what that means is that the in, in Florida, we have a, an admitted market for homeowners insurance carriers that sell policies uh, to homeowners, uh, not, you know, I'm not talking talking about commercial businesses and things of that nature, but I'm talking about your standard homeowner's insurance policy. So generally in order to sell these, to be an insurance carrier, to sell these policies, you have to qualify through the state of Florida and become a member of the admitted market. Um, you know, there's north of 50 carriers, but it's not a huge number in Florida. And then over the last, this calendar year, we've, we've lost three carriers, two insolvencies. Several other carriers have decided that they don't want to write homeowner's insurance in Florida anymore. And the, homeowners are being left with no other option but going to citizens property and casualty insurance company which isn't really an insurance company it's the residual insurance markets like the safety net insurance uh the last resort carrier in the state for folks who can't get homeowners insurance otherwise and and, uh, the be, and, and being the of last resort here we are there the number of policies they're carrying is growing Right, correct. We are citizens. The last time I looked, which was several weeks ago, uh, was north of 800,000 policies, which is a strong number. Um, and that number has been growing dramatically. Uh, I, I've had telephone conversations 
with Demotech, which is the insurance rating agent uh, company that uh, basically says how financially viable an insurance company is. And they rate the majority of the companies in the admitted market here in Florida. And Demotech is concerned that we are going to likely lose another five to six insurance carriers before uh, June 1, which is right around the corner. Uh, the, and, and you got to remember, it, it, five or six carriers, that may not sound a lot like a lot, but if you consider the fact that the admitted insurance carriers in Florida, the market of insurance carriers in Florida, roughly has approximately 50 carriers. So we're looking at potentially 10% of the insurance market going away uh, just before the hurricane season starts June 1. Uh, that's a major problem. You know, uh, you're, you're talking about, again, just a percentage of uh, insurance carriers that could be leaving. But, it, the, you know, some of those are really kind of affecting just other parts of the state. What about it just feels like in South Florida, like citizens has become the only go to in some cases. Right. So citizens has gone and you mentioned it earlier. Uh, citizens uh, was originally created to be the re- residual insurance carrier, the insurance carrier of last resort. However, in many parts of South Florida, it's become the insurance carrier of first resort. Um, One of the things that uh, was done many years ago was there was a glide path put in place, uh, which limited, uh, you know, how premiums would be increased by citizens, which is generally a good thing because we don't don't want homeowners insurance premiums um, to uh, go through the roof and people be priced out of their homes, kind of like what we're seeing now. Uh, But unfortunately, one of the things that happened was, and it's a combination of things uh, that's created a perfect storm. And and really to understand uh, what's going on now, we have to look what's happening. So number one, we've talked about the fact that uh, we have a lot of insolvencies. But then you have to ask yourself, why do we have so many insolvencies? Why are these insurance carriers uh, going insolvent? One of the issues that's causing, um, you know, these insolvencies is the fact that in Florida, um, and, and again, I'm using rough round numbers, so I'm sure you can fact check me and get more precise information. But in Florida, uh, we have approximately eight per, I'm sorry, 80 percent of all the insurance litigation in the country. So if you look at all 50 states, you put you, you look at all the current pending uh, litigation, all 50 states in Florida, we have 80 percent. So you, if you do a pie, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a sizable it, chunk of that pie. Was it? And that's one of the issues that we're having. I had a, a telephone conversation uh, about a month and a half ago with uh, Barry Gilway, the CEO of Citizens. And uh, as the CEO of Citizens, he, he's on the, he, you know, he uh, routinely speaks to the other CEOs of the residual insurance carriers in other states. And what he cites as one of the major problems is, is that the, the defense reserve cost. So, and then that's the amount of money that the insurance carriers have to hold in order to defend so claims. Let me come back. Let me come back to this. Senate Bill 76 from, from last year, mm-hmm. wasn't that supposed to address this? Yes, and that, you, you make an excellent point. So you're clearly very prepared. I appreciate that. So Senate Bill 76 was designed to resolve just about all the problems that we're currently facing right now. Unfortunately, what's hap- what happens is Senate Bill 76 needs time to come into for its uh, you know purpose to come into fruition. It needs time, and the problem that we're facing is uh, with this problem, time is not our friend, and we're seeing these insolvencies grow and become more frequent, and it, it's exacerbating the problem. So then, I mean, for, for this special session, what can you do about that? If if time is what you need, but we don't have. What's the, what are lawmakers going to, you're not going to find the time. What, what, what can well, you do? 
So there's a couple of things that we can do. Uh, and the first thing that I think we need to do is if you have, uh, let's say you're a hospital and you have a patient that walks in the room, into the, walks into the ER, the first thing you do when you triage the patient and you got to stop the hemorrhaging. And the hemorrhaging that we have that's going on right now is the insolvencies. And there, there is something that we can do uh, to stop or slow down the insolvencies. And what we can do is we can expand the CAT fund. The catastrophe fund is, uh, it, it basically plays into the amount of reinsurance an insurance carrier has to buy and to explain that basically reinsurance is the insurance insurance carriers buy to mitigate their risks uh, the cat fund is a layer of that reinsurance uh, that's provided by the state and if the state expands its cat fund it would make the reinsurance requirement for some of these carriers that are on the bubble of going insolvent, uh, it, it would make that requirement less. So they would be able to stay solvent. And I would say that if we make that change, it should be for 12 or 24 months and to be sunset automatically by the statute, because we don't really want to play in that reinsurance market. We just want to make sure that these carriers don't go insolvent. So homeowners in Florida can remain with their current insurance carriers through the hurricane season. I and think that's, that's, I think that's priority number one, and but that doesn't fix the big problem. That just stops the, the you know, the, the massive downward spiral that we're going. Okay. And then you, um, look, during the session, the, you know, it's not to say, by the way, that the, the lawmakers weren't working on the problem, but nothing passed. Something passed the House, but nothing was done this session. That's why we have a special session. Why not? What happened? Well, there was, so part of the issue was that a position that's taken and a position that I take and that I agree with wholeheartedly is that Senate Bill 76 needs time to come into fruition. And we all agree on that. We all agree to that. Uh, we all we all like Senate Bill 76. Um, it's not a perfect solution, but it's a very, very good solution. And it's going to resolve some of these issues. It's going to solve some of the issues with the late claims, late notice claims. It's going to solve some of the issues with the notice of litigation. It's going to solve. It was intended to solve some of the issues with some of the, um, you know, potentially questionable roof roofing claims and the roof roofing solicitation for claims. Um, but there has been litigation that's uh, that's slowed and stopped some parts of those uh, of that bill, and it's taking longer to take uh, take fruition than it was originally viewed or intended to take so there are a lot of us who believe heck you know what we need is just senate bill 76 to work senate bill 76 is is a watershed because it really does make changes that have been needed for many years uh, but unfortunately we find ourselves in a position where we need to take action in order to number one stop the hemorrhaging and then number two one of the things that we also have to look at uh is the you know that sheer volume of litigation part of that sheer volume of litigation is um is motivated by some of the one-way attorney's fees and the way that the one-way attorney fee statute has been interpreted by the florida supreme court so one thing that we need to look at is do we need a fee multiplier or can it just be a simple lodestar system for okay. purposes of uh addressing the attorney's fees I, um if i mean just real quickly i wanted to remind everyone that again we're talking about property insurance because the special session that's coming up at the end of the month lawmakers are going to be tackling this this issue uh in tallahassee again talking with state republican representative tom fabricio uh parts of broward and miami-dade counties 
Uh, and again, his background is insurance law. That special session begins May 23rd, and you could follow it here on um, uh, WLRN.org or on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um, is there a proposal or two that you're pushing for hardest in this special session that you want to see pass? Well, the elements that I've been talking to you about are are the elements that I'm pushing forward okay. uh, and that I believe will be needed uh, in whatever uh, bill that we get uh, across. I, I Like I mentioned, number one, I think we need to stop the hemorrhaging. And to do that, I believe we need to uh, expand the CAT fund in a temporary manner. Uh, number two, I think we need to have some uh, limitation on these attorney's fees uh, that are fueling this massive uh, amount of litigation that we have in Florida. And then number three, I think we need to do things to clean up Senate Bill 76. And so some of the things that have been held, that have caused it to be held up uh, in court, I think we can clarify the intent of that bill and we could uh, cause a lot of the issues that are causing this crisis uh, to be resolved. What do you think it is, though? You talk, you talk about stopping the hemorrhaging. What's leading to all these insolvencies? It's, it's what I mentioned. We have a huge amount of litigation in the state of Florida. Uh, the defense reserves that the carriers are spending on uh, is through the roof. The carriers are having to raise rates. In some, uh, Because of the litigation, the carriers are having to raise rates. And because, uh, because citizens' rates are capped uh, or on that glide path, uh, um, the other the carriers can't really raise rates because the market doesn't yield that. Do you so, think? And, but, but, and, and, and let me clarify this: the view isn't that we want to raise rates. The view is that we want to reduce the root cause of what's causing the rates to be needed to be raised. Right, and and but you know what? Here's the thing: do you think Florida is just unique? Because think about this: think about our geography. Think about the fact that, you know, we, we can go years without a storm and then get smacked one year with two or three big ones. And then there's climate change and sea level rise. So flooding is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Do you think this is just a state where we're always going to be in flux on this problem? Well, so first of all, these policies do not cover flood. So flood is totally a different issue. Um, is Florida unique? Yes, we have a lot of coastline. Uh, but also Florida. So you got to look at this other statistic. The fact is, is that while we do have 80% of all the litigation, we only have 8% of all the claims in the state, in the United States. Okay. So how do you reverse that? Like we mentioned, we, I, I think the attorney, the attorney fee multiplier is a big problem. I think it fuels a lot of litigation. I think, uh, you know, the part of the reason why a fee multiplier, uh, uh, would be appropriate in any circumstance is because it's difficult to find an attorney who would handle a case other than for that fee multiplier. Uh, but obviously, there are plenty of lawyers handling plenty of cases, so I don't see that multiplier as being needed. Let me finish with this. Have, have you spoken with um, you know and anyone else up uh, you know any of the other lawmakers? How confident are you that this special session so there could be some resolution? I'm confident that we will get something done. I don't know how expansive uh, the uh, results are going to be. Uh, as you know, it's 120 members of the House. It's 40 uh, members of the Senate. And uh, building consensus is hard work. This is not generally one of the more glamorous areas. It's a highly technical area. So, uh, you know, there's a, there, there's a lot of uphills. Um, but there, it's a, while it's not a glamorous uh, area, this is not 
or red meat area in any which way. It's, I believe, in my personal opinion, this is probably one of the more important issues uh, that Florida is confronting right now. And I think it's critically important that we get this right in order to have Florida's economy uh, on solid footing going forward. And I do appreciate, I know that you repeated yourself a couple of times, but as you said, this is one of those topics, Not it's not a sexy topic, it's not always one that we want to talk about, but it's an important one, it's affecting a lot of people, and sometimes, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the weeds in this, and I do appreciate you clarifying a lot of things for us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Again, Republican Representative Tom Fabricio. Again, a reminder that the special session uh, begins May 23rd, and you could follow it here at WLRN.org or on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, for many families, preparing healthy meals can be a challenge. A new program hopes to share some inexpensive ideas. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. South Florida's most popular chefs are joining to help families cook on a budget. Florida has one of the highest rates of people on food stamps. 14% of the state's population is using that assistance for their nutrition. The local humanitarian charity Camilla's House started a program. It's called Chef Challenge, and they're helping families cook affordable meals with fresh ingredients. Joining me now is Stacy Archer. She is the Camilla's House Volunteer of the Year for 2022. Stacy, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Also joining us is the program's culinary director, the James Beard Award-winning chef, Norman Van Aken. Norman, we haven't talked to you in a while. Welcome back. Thanks, Lewis. Good to be on the show. Great to have you. Um, Stacy. I'm going to start with you. This idea came to you from, what, a life experience? It did. It did. I uh, found myself several years ago, a single mom of three young kids, and I was barely making ends meet. And uh, I reached out for assistance and got on food stamps and uh, learned how to budget like never before. And I didn't want my children to suffer. I didn't want them to realize that, you know, we're eating frozen pizzas and macaroni and cheese every night, but that they were still having the home cooked meals they were used to. So um, from that life experience, I learned how to cook on a budget, a very limited budget, started a food blog and decided I could help Camillus because they have families that are on food stamps and in need just as I am or was. And I wanted to share my recipes with them. This is so fascinating. And I know that, you know, having covered the, you know, issue of food over so many years that so many people do struggle to eat healthy, um, you know, get fresh foods and eat healthy when they're on a very tight budget. Um, you know, Norman, you know, for you personally, why, why is this an important project for you? You wanted to get involved. Yeah. Um, well, I've been fortunate enough to have the restaurant Normans over the years, and we did um, a great number of um, charity events for Camilla's House, and that included me joining other chefs in the downtown facility and, you know, feeding and doing things like that and doing Thanksgiving things. Then um, one of our most staunch customers over the years is a gentleman named Bob Dickinson that many in the community would know. Um, he mentioned to Stacy uh, while she was doing this uh, chef program um, that he knew me and that maybe I would be a person that could help her. Uh, along the path of getting um, 
getting the program going by inviting other chefs to participate, and that's where we intersected. You know, uh, Norman, I, I think about this, and so we talk about, especially now with inflation as it is, the price of things going up, and, uh, you know, talking to people, uh, we will complain, oh my gosh, I noticed the produce is going up, oh my gosh, this is going up. Um, is it, how hard is it to be able to create healthy, delicious meals, as Stacy said, home-cooked meals, but on a really tight budget? You know, ironically, that's where the chefs really can do some magic because while we're known oftentimes for creating elaborate dishes with expensive ingredients, most of us came up through the ranks and did very simple cooking in the beginning years, home cooking almost. And um, when you have that wellspring of experience, you can quickly figure out how to feed oneself and feed family or feed other families, uh, as in this case, by um, being resourceful and knowing just the basic techniques of cooking and and having fun with it and, and sharing that love and passion that we have in the kitchen. Yeah, so what is the criteria for these dishes that you and the other chefs are presenting? What what are the criteria that you have to meet in, you know, when you're preparing them? Stacy, please take this issue. You built this. Yeah, Stacey, what, what's the criteria? For, okay, okay. So <laughs> I, I came to Chef Norman and I said, listen, if I only had $20 to spend and I needed to feed a home-cooked meal to a family of four, do you think you and other chefs could rise to the challenge? And he, without hesitation, said, yes, $20, feed a family of four, use fresh ingredients, and also the caveat that a lot of these people are in homes that they don't have fancy kitchen appliances. They don't have food processors. They don't have blenders. You know, they may not even have a cast iron skillet. So how do you create these recipes that use minimal kitchen utensils, under $20, all fresh ingredients? And Norman was the first out of the gate. He rose to the challenge. And Norman, I believe your first your first meal was using chicken thighs as an inexpensive meat product, but still delicious in flavor and high in protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norman came on and he made chicken thighs with collard greens and, and grits. And everybody loved it and couldn't get over the fact that not only could they feed their family, but they actually had leftovers. Norman, tell me about yeah. That's the 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 series started with that recipe: roasted chicken thighs, corn grits, and collards. Coca Cola collards, as a matter of fact. Wow. Okay. I think it enticed the children and the families along with that one, so um, it it did work. Um, they, I don't think they ever had collards with Coca Cola before this class, and so and that's one of the things we want to have happen. We want the families to make these dishes or you know parts of the dishes many times through the year. And so with 12 chefs covering the 2022 calendar, um, they're going to get 12 recipes and they're in the parts of recipes that build an entire dish. And they're going to get a wide range of recipes because our chefs run the spectrum from all over. The shared aspect of the chefs is that they're considered the best in the city. You know, Stacy. the other thing I was thinking of is not only have you learned how to, uh, you know, create a, a delicious home-cooked meal on a budget, I'd imagine you also learned where to find the best stuff, you know, at the lowest price, uh, you, that you, you know how to shop. 
<laughs> yes, you can say that. I mean, I'm a big fan of Publix and watching their buy one, get ones. And so whenever anything would be a buy one, get one, I was doubling up. And what I try to teach these families is it's okay to buy in bulk because you can freeze most of what you buy or you can make the dish bigger than you anticipate eating and then freeze it as leftovers that you can reheat the next day. Mm. So I think honestly, that was my biggest thing with my understanding of how to make your dollar stretch is buy in bulk, watch those sales and freeze things up as you don't need them and you can pull them out of the freezer at a later time. How many families are you working with? It's wonderful. So Camilla's House, uh, which you mentioned earlier, that's the organization we're working with. It's the largest non um, nonprofit homeless organization in Miami. Um, they have an offshoot in Verdict Gardens, which is in Homestead. There's 175 families living in permanent subsidized housing. So they're no longer on the street. They're no longer homeless. They're getting what they need for rehab. They're getting life skills. They're getting job skills. And we're working with them to teach them cooking skills, to teach them healthy habits. And so 175 families are able to participate every month. We do a virtual class. So we Zoom in to these families as they're in their kitchens following along with the recipe of the chef. Um, and we even take it one step further. We actually deliver to them just hours before dinner goes on. We deliver a meal kit to them with all the ingredients necessary to make the recipe because we feel like, you know, if we're branching them out to learning how to cook for the first time or for whatever reason these kids are involved and they don't know anything about fresh ingredients, we wanna make the barrier entry to them very easy. So by presenting them with the meal kit, with everything they need, they join us for the virtual cooking class. They cook along with us. We can see them, they can see us. It's very interactive. It's it's a stepping stone, like I said, of a life skill for them. Mm. <laughs> Again, I'm talking with Stacy Archer. She is the Camillus House Volunteer of the Year uh, for 2022. Also j joining us is James Beard, award-winning chef, Norman Van Aken, and we're talking about uh, this amazing program that's teaching families how to prepare affordable home-cooked meals, people who are living on a tight budget. You could learn more about this program. It's on our social media, WLRNSundial. Also, we have a link to the recipes videos where you can also follow along and learn how to do this yourself. Uh, Norman, teaching classes online, uh, again, you're giving these families these step-by-step -step instructions as Stacy was describing them to us. What's that been like, teaching online? You know, when COVID came along and we all had to figure out new patterns for our lives, um, one of the things that I started to do was to do exactly that, um, which was just out of my own interest in cooking and reaching out and sharing my um, lifelong love of, of making food and sharing that with others. You know, through Instagram, I learned that there was these videos that you could make. And so with my wife holding my iPhone, um, we began to do um, one every other day or so. And so it, I was doing that for about a year when um, Stacy and I met each other. And when she described to me that she wanted to do the virtual classes, which she been, had been doing already herself for a number of months, I said, well, <laughs> I've got some experience with that from having done it myself in this way. So it was 
kind of a natural fit by that point in time. Mm. What, Norman, what, what have you gathered from this experience working with families? Because as you said before, you know, you've had the chance to work with the best of the best of everything, but here you're, you know, working with families to help them uh, in this way. How, how do you take that back with you when, you know, when you're back in the kitchen working? You know, it may sound like a cliche, but it's so immensely gratifying to be able to do what I've always done, and oftentimes for the most wealthy aspects of the community, but to do it for people who are in need and people who are going to repeat these lessons and to share it with the, you know, the people that, I mean, Stacy said, well, we need 12 chefs for the next year. Do you think you could get me back, get some to me by a month or so? I called her three days later and I gave her the roster of who we had, which includes, you know, the heavyweights, Michael Beltran, uh, Michelle Bernstein, Michael Schwartz, Cindy Hudson, Brad Kilgore. I mean, it's an extraordinary group, that extraordinary group that, um, and some of are already saying, hey, I want to do it again in 2023. And so we plan on continuing. You know, Stacey, I'm thinking back to what you said, you know, in your own personal experience and, uh, you know, talking with families, you know, it, it, sometimes, uh, you know, there is a stigma, there's an, maybe a feeling of embarrassment, um, you know, in, in having to live a life where you're, you're having to live on a very tight budget. Do you find that you have to help people break through that and say, look, you could do this. It's very possible. You know, is, is there a challenge in breaking through that wall? It is. Uh, you know, there there are many moms that felt the same way that I did. I was embarrassed. I felt like I failed my children because I wasn't able to provide for them without the assistance of government food stamps. Um, and now that I have gone through that experience and appreciate the fact that I had that support so I could get back on my own two feet, I bring my story to them and say, don't worry about where you're at. Think about where you're going. Let us help you get there. So um, it's been wonderful. I've I've gotten to know these families really well. We've been doing this program for over a year. I see their faces on Zoom. They're showing me what they're making as we're making it with our chefs. They're proud. Um, I've talked to families that have said, we're saving your recipes. We have our favorites. We're remaking them. So I guess it just, it makes me feel a sense of accomplishment because I know that they can do what I did. And that is learn, persevere, and get on your own two feet again. Stacy, uh, oh, go ahead, Norman. Yeah. And having the kids, I mean, this is another thing. I mean, it's, a lot of times people, you know, have food ready for the family and, you know, everybody's got and everybody's got different schedules. Well, here at Verde Gardens, it's a different scenario. This really goes back to the way life was for generations preceding ours. And it touches us both very much that when we look into the, to the camera and see into the homes while they're cooking, you know, a lot of times the children are cooking right alongside because they're excited to be, you know, kind of like cooking with the chefs of the city. That's a really interesting point. Never thought of that. Um, Stacy, you presented uh, carbonara with a salad, right? For, for <laughs> your presentation. All right, tell us about the dish. Oh, my gosh. It was one of my staples uh, when all I could really afford was pasta and eggs, you know, the basic, basic, basics. And so carbonara was my go-to. It was when I didn't have 
expensive meats in my fridge. I, I just need something very basic. Um, whipping up carbonara with the Parmesan and yes, of course, bacon with the, the great flavor of bacon and pasta. It was great. And then to offset it, because I had my mom guilt about not having a vegetable, um, I found these salad kits that you can buy in the grocery store. Again, if you watch the sales, you can get, you know, buy one, get one. I found these salad kits so helpful to just put dinner on the table and feel good about getting a vegetable in there in a really quick time. Mm. You know, Norman, I, I asked Stacy earlier, and I just wanted your thoughts on this too, because I, I know you've got to be one of the best shoppers out there, is, you know, finding those really fresh ingredients, uh, especially uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. I don't know if maybe there's a little secret you could tell us about where else you find them. We have an amazing uh, cluster of farmer's markets in Miami spread throughout north to south, and that is my first choice always. And because you are working at the peak of seasonality and you're supporting the local farmers in the process, you're seeing um, fruits and vegetables primarily. There are you know meats and cheeses and dairy products and things like that. You're able to chat with these people that grow these things and get firsthand advice on how to go ahead and make those foods at home. So that's my that's my that's my dear love mm. farmers market. Uh, you did mention that you've got chefs who are interested in being part of this again next year. Uh, I take it that it's it's going to expand to next year as well. Yes, uh, and some chefs that heard about it and found out that we'd already filled up 2022, I said, well, you, you've got to put me on for next year, chef. You, you know, we want to be involved too. And it's not because they're trying to like get a public relations yet. They just, this touches the nerve with them and they want to be involved and help the families. It's, Gratifying. Definitely. Stacy, uh, you know, looking ahead, looking forward, you know, how do you hope to expand this and, and reach more people? Well, my and Norman and I were dreaming and scheming all the time on this, but I'd like to get this to be a national program. I don't see why it only has to happen in Miami. Um, homelessness or poverty is a national crisis, especially given inflation, as you mentioned earlier, given rent increases. I mean, we're going to see more and more families needing this type of education. And so, yeah, as I look down the road and say, where do I want to be? I want to be in California and New York. Those are the two highest uh, homeless population states, California first, New York second, we here in Florida are third, um, but I want to get it national. I want to get in other cities doing this very same thing, teaching classes on how to cook healthy for people who, you know, are on a very restricted budget. They don't have to be homeless. I mean, they anybody can relate to the fact that, you know, a, a James Beard award-winning chef is rolling up his sleeves and putting on his best thinking to come up with a recipe that's under $20 for a family of four, but still has their signature flavors and thoughts into it. Right. Norman, have you learned anything from this that, you, you know, you're going to take back to the kitchen? I'm always, I'm always about the learning. And I've, you know, my whole life has been um, one where I'm happy to learn from people who come from different walks of life. So, you know, I know through interacting with these families that I'm going to pick up from them just as much as they're picking up from me. 
You know what? I, thank you both for what you're doing. There's a need. Sadly, there's a need, but it's good that uh, this is out there, uh, helping a lot of folks out there. And I think that it makes it fun. And I think that helps r- remove some of that stigma and that fear. Again, talking with James Beard, award-winning chef Norman Van Aken, also Stacy Archer, the Camillus House Volunteer of the Year uh, for 2022. Again, they're leading the Camillus House Chef Challenge. Learn more about this program on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Norman, Stacy, thanks so much for sharing with us. I really appreciate it. Just want to Thank give you. a quick shout by you too, Lewis. FIU has been a huge help to this endeavor. Uh, fantastic. Put it that in there as well. Thank you, FIU, for the help. All right. Again, more information on the program on our social media, WLRN Sundial. And by the way, if you'd like to get in touch with us and learn more about that program or anything else that we talk about on the show, please don't forget we have a Sundial Text Club. It's 786-677-0767. That's 786-677-0767. Perhaps you've learned also how to create great dishes on a tight, tight budget. Again, 786-677-0767. Well, still to come, there's a new documentary about the messy legacy that South Florida rapper XXXTentacion leaves behind after his death. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. You're hearing the song Sad. It's by the late rapper XXXTentacion. For his fans, it's a somber reminder of what could have been. The local performer whose legal name was Jose Onfroy died in June of 2018 from multiple gunshot wounds. His life, as short as it was, made a mark on the music scene, but he also made some controversial choices. He was awaiting trial on felony charges on home invasion and aggravated battery. The story of his life is now being told in a documentary on Hulu. It's called Look at Me, Tentacion. We're joined now by the director, Saba Folayan. And a disclaimer here, this conversation is going to bring up some sensitive topics. Saba, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Luis. It's a pleasure. Tell me when you first heard XXXTentacion's music. I first heard his music back in the day when he was coming up on SoundCloud because I was very much into the underground music scene. Um, And then when the controversy started, um, that's when I sort of stopped listening to it for a while uh, because I just felt obviously disturbed by the, the, the news of the allegations. Um, and it was after he passed that I started to really reconcile with more of the depth of his story and and kind of look back at the music a little bit more carefully. I want to come back to that song that we were just playing a little bit of. Again, the title of it is Sad. I just want to touch on something here, but let's listen a little bit more. He incorporated so many different genres, R&B, rock, hip-hop, a lot. How do you describe his style? Um, I think it was very well-rounded. If you go into the archives of his music, you see all different types of rap, boom-bap music, 
reggae music, uh, you know, kind of emo rock influences, heavy metal, punk. He really had the ability to execute great art across different genres. And it was quite incredible to learn as I as I researched it. He died at a very young age. He was 20. Um, when he died, it made national news. I, I remember, you know, as, as a news anchor here, you know, that story became a, a really big story for us uh, because he's local and he did have this uh, very hardcore fan base. What do you think it was about him that keeps touching people even to this day? I think it was uh, how universal his pain was, to be honest. What he experienced the raw emotion that he put in his music, it touched people because people are experiencing it too. Um, and I think he knew that and he had this the ability and the awareness to communicate and share that out to create a space where people could be seen, where people's truth could be seen. What was your approach when you're putting this documentary together? Because he has a disturbing history of violence. And I want to know what were your initial thoughts on reconciling the art and the artist? Um, that's a great question. I think that the idea of separating the art from the artist is quite silly. I think that it's always both. And I think that, you know, art comes from humanity. So there is no separation there. I went into it with survivors, domestic violence survivors at the forefront of my mind, as well as people who struggle with mental illness. Um, I went into it assuming that the allegations had some validity because I know that there is really no incentive or benefit to women um, in making false allegations. As a matter of fact, it puts women in a very vulnerable and difficult position, as you see in the film. Um, and so I was very clear from the outset that this was going to be about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that the way to discourage violence is really to confront it for what it is, not to try to believe that it's something that is you know, that human beings don't do. Often people ask, well, how can you humanize someone like this? It's not up to me whether or not this behavior is human. It's a fact. The statistics show it. The stories and experiences of women and families all across the country and the world show that these behaviors are human. And I think the only way to try to improve them is to look closely at them. So that was my initial approach. And, and you're talking about this, this uh, as I had mentioned, again, awaiting this trial, because you spoke with his ex-girlfriend, um, Geneva Ayala, um, he, and, and again, he was waiting trial for aggravated battery. Uh, he was arrested for beating her up while she was apparently pregnant. She was demonized by some of his fan base when the police report she filed sent him back to prison. What did you learn uh, from her about who Tentacion really was? Well, I just learned how deeply complicated a situation like this is. Um, what came to the forefront for me is that domestic abuse and domestic violence, intimate partner violence, is violence that happens between people that love each other. And those bonds don't disappear, regardless of how heinous and unforgivable the violence may be. And so people in the aftermath are left grappling with um, you know, their anger, their sense of betrayal, their sense of being victimized, and also their care, and maybe their worry about that person's well-being. And so as a bystander, as someone who wants to be a supporter of survivors, um, I just realized that the sensitivity 
toward abusers and and what makes them do what they do and even the other aspects of them um that was part of what geneva wanted as a survivor and it was really difficult honestly to accept because there was kind of this urge to draw these much harder clearer delineations um but those lines just weren't there when i got into the material yeah there was a a variety film review on this documentary and it said this quote uh, who would have known that XXX Tentacion, a symbol of misogyny in his lifetime, would have his death lead to a movie that climaxes with a bittersweet feminist statement? What do you think about that? Well, I was really, really humbled when I saw that review. I was so, so grateful. Um, you know, my the biggest thing that, that me and my editor and my team went back and forth about was, you know, is are we doing harm? by memorializing someone who was violent. Is this useful and how can this be useful? And so for for that writer to pull that out, I'm just really grateful that that was the takeaway because that was certainly the intention. The people in his life, his mother, his manager, his friends, uh, how open were they in sharing their stories? They were very open. Um, I commend them and I'm I'm really proud of them because they were so generous. We were aligned from the beginning on the idea that we needed to be honest, we needed to be brave, we needed to be courageous so that we could continue the mission that he started out because I really do believe that he wanted to help people, that he wanted his overall impact, at least by the end of his life, to be a positive one. And that if we could tell the truth and if we could have radical honesty with some of these difficult topics, that we could actually achieve, um, you know, achieve that goal of having this be a positive ripple effect, even with knowing all of the negative and all of the harm that was done. His his mother was uh, an executive producer on the movie, right? Yes. How, how involved was she? She was very involved. And this is something that really goes against the grain of, of what's normal, I think, in documentary storytelling. We're usually advised, you know, don't so, show the subjects anything until after the film is finished. Mm. And I was determined that we would do this together, that we would tell this story consensually, that we would navigate. Um, you know, being honest was the prerequisite from the beginning, but how we went about that, I wanted us to do together. Because in my mind, I'm like, this is a mom who's grieving the loss of her child, I think it would be crazy to expect her to put all of that trust in someone's hands and then they go away and take it. Um, I didn't want to take that autonomy from someone who had clearly experienced so much trauma and so much loss. And I had this faith in my heart that with sincerity and with effort, that we could actually do this together in a way that was transparent. So I'm really, really proud that we were able to follow through. I want to go back to his music again. Here's another, I want to, a little piece of another song. This is called Alone Part Three. You know, it's so fascinating that you, this shows the diversity of his music and his sound uh, because, you know, there are scenes in the film where, you know, you see him on that stage and he's jumping up and down and even screaming and cursing and the crowd is in it with him that he turns and then sings something like this. What did he achieve as a performer? How big was he 
or was he still mostly underground? By the time that he died, he was huge. I mean, his album, Question Mark, is the number one streamed album on Spotify to this day. Um, his single, Sad, is one of only 40 songs in the history of music to be certified diamond. So what the numbers show is that he was absolutely seismic in his impact. Um, you know, people who know music have compared the, the impact of his death to the loss of Kurt Cobain in terms of just the ripple effect that you could feel across South Florida when he died. And so I think that um, his impact, because he was, you know, sort of canceled or boycotted in a lot of media outlets, a lot of people don't realize that in his own right, through his own personal influence and momentum, he touched an entire generation. It, you know, it, I think that speaks to the world we live in because, as you said, yeah, you know, the, the mainstream didn't pick up on him. But we live in a world now where, I mean, you know, you make it on Spotify, you make it on SoundCloud, uh, you don't need the mainstream as much. Um, I didn't know this. It, it pointed out in the film that he was diagnosed bipolar when he was, what, 13? Yes. He was very open about his, his mental health struggles. Um, and then he would go on social media. He would talk to people about his depression, his vulnerability. Um, but he'd also brag about his, you know, the, the violence uh, in a graphic way. Sometimes they'd film fights. How did, how did his fan base respond to what seems like a contradiction maybe uh, that I'm seeing? But uh, well, how did they respond to that? It's interesting that you say that because I remember doing an interview with talking about those fights and you know and i, I was talking to some of, uh, members only his his group that he made music with and you know i had all of this concern like oh my god fights and 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 feeling like this is so antisocial of them to be sort of glamorizing and then my cinematographer who's actually also jamaican as jesse is was sort of reflecting to me later about how that was the way that young men were establishing status in their sort of after school social lives, you know? And it kind yeah. of like flashed me back to being in high school and being in a big circle and being like, fight, fight, fight. And right, it, right. it doesn't carry the same pathology, I think, for children as it does for us. So that was just really interesting to set back and put myself in those shoes and, and remember that, you know, we're we're very scandalized because we're adults and we're socialized in a certain way, but I don't know if we're fully paying attention to what the world is for young people. Right. I have to end it there. I apologize. This is a fascinating story. Saba, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Luis. It's a pleasure. Definitely. Saba Folian, again, director of the Hulu documentary, Look at Me, XXX Tentacion. MDC's Tower Theater Miami will be showing the film later today at 7 p.m. And I also just want to mention the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's our program for this Wednesday, May 11th. Tomorrow, Wildlife Thursday. Wilkin Brutus is in the chair for me tomorrow. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute.